Well, uh, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we're glad to have you. We would love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And I uh, love to help you find a way to, to grow in your faith and continue to, maybe you're here, want to explore what it means to follow Jesus or want to keep growing up in your faith. Uh, we'd love to get you plugged into small groups and get to know you, help you get, help you get connected in that way. So... Excited as well to uh, continue our series this summer. Uh, we are studying the attributes of God this summer. And an attribute, it refers to a quality or a characteristic that belongs to someone. And God's attributes, they define and describe who he is and what he's like. They reveal his nature and his character to us. In other words, in other words God's, God's attributes, they, they, they tell us who he is. As we began our series, uh, what I said is that the, the reason why spending the whole summer studying the doctrine of God and thinking, learning to think rightly about who he is and what he's like, the reason why all that is so worthwhile and so important is because what we believe always changes what we do. What we believe always changes what we do. Our actions and the way that we live, they're the, 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 our behaviors, they are the tangible expression of our beliefs. And nowhere is that more true in our lives than with what we believe about God. And so studying God's attributes isn't just some intellectual exercise for pastors and professors. It's something that has deep, real-life implications for each and every one of us in our everyday lives. And that's exactly what we've seen the last couple of weeks as we took, at the first, uh, took a look at the first couple of God's attributes. We, we, we saw how beholding and believing in a God who is infinite and who is triune changes the way that we live in real ways. While God's limitless incomprehensibility can feel unnerving or unsettling, we saw how it's actually good news because when we rely on our own limited power and knowledge and influence or when we fashion a God who's confined by those same limits, all it makes us is anxious and fearful. But instead, if we'll choose to acknowledge our limits and rest in a God whose power and knowledge and love all know no limits, then we'll actually be able to have peace and joy. And, and we saw as well that while the Trinitarian nature of God, the, the one true God who is three persons simultaneously and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Well, we saw how that's really hard to wrap our minds around in a really concrete kind of way. It's actually the key to making sense of so much about who God is and how he's called us to live as his image-bearing people. We saw how we're created not to pursue our own power or our own self-glorification, self but instead to be characterized by a selflessness and a sacrificial love for others and, and, and for the pursuit of God-glorification because the God that we worship and the God whose image we are made in the three members of the Trinitarian God have been doing that for, throughout all eternity for one, for one another. We saw similarly the reason why loneliness and isolation are so painful, even for introverts, and why community is so essential for every human ever is because we are made in the image of a God. We're made to reflect a God who has existed in community for all eternity. You see... 
that, all that actually brings us to the attribute that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is the aseity of God. It's a fancy word. I like to throw those out every once in a while so you guys make sure you feel like you're getting your money's worth, right? Um, we'll break it down in a minute here. But God's aseity is it's a theological term that refers to these two attributes of his that kind of are intrinsically intertwined, his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. And like we talked about last week, God didn't create the universe out of a lack or out of a need. He, he wasn't looking for love or relationship or community or more glory. We saw that the triune God had all of those things in limitless abundance before he created anyone or everything. And so God did not create out of a lack. He did not create out of incompleteness. He didn't create out of a desire to fulfill something that wasn't already fulfilled in him. You know, he is entirely self-sufficient. He isn't dependent on anyone or anything in any way. And the reason why he's self-sufficient is because he is self-existent. God does not owe his existence to anyone or anything. In fact, just the opposite is true. Everyone and everything owes their existence to him. You see, you and I, we are contingent, dependent beings, but God is not. And I can't wait to show you this morning how beholding and believing in that kind of a God has the power to transform us and free us to become the people that he's made us to be. And so with that in mind, let's pray this morning and we'll dive into our study together. God, we're grateful to get to gather again this morning for worship. And as we uh, come to your word again this morning, we ask that you might graciously speak to us through it. God, that you would help us to know who you are. God, we're so grateful that you are not a God who tries to hide yourself. You're not just wrapped up in mystery for mystery's sake. God, but you want us to know you. And so we pray that you would keep showing yourself to us, that you would keep opening the eyes of our minds and our hearts so that we might see you rightly. And God, we just pray as well that where our understanding and where our reasoning finds its limits God, that you might be gracious to like fill us with a faith that trusts that who you say you are is true, even if we can't comprehend it entirely. And so we pray that all of that, God, would well up into a worship for you that looks like our lives given in reflection of you so that you might be glorified in and through us. And so, God, uh, I don't have any power to bring any of that about, only you do. And we pray that for our good and your glory you would this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, so like I said, this morning we're going to be taking a look at the aseity of God. And it, that's a Latin term that's coined by theologians to express these two really deeply intertwined attributes of God, his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. And when it comes to the self-existence of God, the quintessential passage that you've got to look at is Exodus chapter 3. And in Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters God for the first time in the burning bush. And God speaks to him from within this burning bush. And he commissions Moses to go back to Egypt where his hometown and where he's from, where he's born and raised, to, to rescue God's people from the slavery that they found themselves in that land. And Moses is apprehensive, to say the least. Um, but what you find is that near the end of the passage, he eventually agrees. And in verse 13 and 14, he, he talks to God this way. He asks this question. Moses says to God, he says, Suppose that I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me. Now, 
For you and me, a name is functionally just a label. It's something that we use to identify people. It's a, it's a label that we use to, to, to label people, not in a bad way. But in the Bible, a name has much deeper connotations. You see, in the Bible, a name speaks to the very essence of a person's being. It's, it's not just a label that is applied to them. It is a revelation about who they really are. And so it speaks to the very essence and being. And so Moses, when he's asking God what his name is, he's not just saying, what do I call you? He's, the, the question that he is asking is, who are you? What are you like? Who, who are you in essence, in character? Who is this God that's sending me? And in calling himself, the, and what, what happens is that, that translators, they have a bunch of opinions about how to exactly translate the word that God uses for his name here, but essentially the name that God gives Moses is the Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew verb that's just to be the one who exists. And in calling himself the the God who simply is, what God is saying to Moses is that I am the God who has no beginning and no end. I always am. Nothing and no one has caused me. I am the self-existent one. I'm not contingent on anyone or anything. I do not owe my being to anyone or anything. Instead, I am the cause of everything. Everything else is contingent on me. The rest of Scripture affirms this reality. Psalm 90 verse 2 says it this way, Before the mountains were born, or, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah chapter 40, do not, verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, speaking of Jesus here, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. Revelations chapter 4, verse 7. For you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You see, unlike human beings, God does not have a time or a place of origin. He never came into being. God always was and he always will be. He he does not owe his existence to anyone or anything else. He is not a contingent being in any way. He wasn't created. Nobody gives God life. Instead, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, that God has life in himself. That everyone and everything owes his existence to him. A.W. Tozer sums it up this way. He says, all life is in and from God whether it be the lowest form of conscious life or the highest form of self-conscious intelligence, no creature has life in itself. All life is a gift from God. The reality is is that that's obviously hard for us to like wrap our minds around. The idea of a God who doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end, who doesn't have an origin and who isn't a created being because everyone and everything we know has a beginning and an end. It's a created thing. J.I. Packer puts it this way, he says, God exists in a different way from us. We, his creatures, exist in a dependent and derived and finite way, but our maker exists in an eternal, self-sustaining, and necessary way. 
Necessary, that is, in the sense that God does not have it in him to go out of existence, just as we do not have it in us to live forever. See, God's aseity, it begins with his self-existence. He is the uncreated creator God. And because God is completely self-existent, what that means is that he is not dependent on anything outside of himself. He's utterly self-sufficient. And that's the second half of God's aseity. And that burning bush passage in Exodus 3, that, that alludes to, to that second part of God's aseity as well. Now, I am no fire expert. Uh, in fact, uh, Hannah, my wife, is the one who makes all the bonfires in the Pepin household. Right? I just let her be in charge of it. She does a great job. I, I, they just don't work for me, right? And, but what I do know about fires is that all our fires, they require fuel and not Boy Scout juice, right? Like they, they actually require a, a fuel to be burned. And fire only exists as long as there's a fuel to burn. For example, a bush, right? And once that fuel is used up, then the fire goes out. But not this fire that Moses encounters God in. You see, it's a fire that we read in chapter Exodus 13, verse 2. It says, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. See, the, the fire in Exodus chapter 13, this fire that God's revealing himself to Moses through, it's, it's a fire that doesn't depend on anything. It's a fire that has its own infinite source of energy and power. It is a fire that is entirely self-sufficient. You see, God's self-sufficiency means that he has no needs. He has no needs. You see, need is a word that is used of created beings. You and I, our neighbors, everyone and everything, we all have needs, and yet God has none. He's entirely sufficient in and of himself. Jen Wilkin, she sums it up this way. She says, creating and sustaining all things, he is himself created and sustained by none. What the Energizer Bunny purports to be and what the perpetual motion device aspires to be, God is, in fact, a self-contained source of perpetual and perfect sustenance, needed by all, needful of nothing. You see, and you see that reality all over Scripture. And Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24 says this. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. Psalm chapter 50, verse 9. God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, all the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that's in it. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Athenians of the Acropolis and he says it this way, explaining to them this God that they do not know. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I think the Apostle Paul best sums God's aseity up in Romans chapter 11 when he writes this. 
In verse 36, he says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. So to him be the glory forever and ever. See what Paul is saying there, what he is summing up in Romans 11. What he's saying is that this self-existent and self-sufficient God is not just the source of all things, not just the means by which all things exist. He's the point of all of it. He's the goal of it. All of it is meant to point to him. See, and that brings us to how the aseity of God impacts our lives. Like I said, God is not just the means of all things, and he's not just the source of all things. He's the goal of them. See, the emphatic teaching of the Bible is that God exists for himself and that everyone and everything exists for his glory. He's the maker and creator of everything, the source of all life, which means that all we are and all we have is actually his. It's all actually his, from the breath in our lungs to the shoes and your feet, from the roof over your head to your children that lay in their beds at night. All of it is ultimately his. It's all his. We owe everything to God. And that means at least two really profound things. Number one, it means that our primary purpose is not self-gratification and self-glorification, but worship. We live in a world that says everything is about you. That you are the thing that is of chief and supreme importance. But every word in Scripture reminds us that that's a lie. That there's a God who created and made everything. And that it exists for his glory. And we don't have time to do the deep dive on this, but that is such good news because God is not a selfish God. He is a God who is wildly generous and who loves to share and to give. And so it's not just this endless narcissistic deity that makes and creates and claims his glory, but it's one who's worth giving it to. And so our primary purpose is worship, but what it also means is that you and I are stewards of all we have, not owners of it. Living as a steward, it changes how you think. You see, an owner thinks, what's mine is mine, I'll use it the way I want to. But a steward realizes that what's yours is actually God's, and so you'll use it as he longs for you to. You'll use it as he sees fit. A steward understands that all of our time and our money and our possessions and our skills and our careers and our families, that all of it is not ours to own, but we are merely stewards of all of it. That all we are and that all we have is an undeserved and unobligated gift from him. And the steward understands that when we give something back to God, we are only giving him what he's already given to us in the first place. We're only giving him back the things he's already given to us. Us. King David sums up this attitude perfectly, the attitude of a steward in 1 Chronicles chapter 9 when he, he writes, he says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? He says, for everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes out of your hand. You see, when we worship a self-existent God, it means that we are stewards, not owners. That changes our lives. And so beholding and believing in the self-existence of God, it changes us, but so does believing in the self-sufficiency of God. 
You see, it's this incredibly freeing and liberating thing. Because the God that we worship is a God who does not have any needs, what that means is that you are not holding him up, you are not lifting him up, and you are also not letting him down. A.W. Tozer so poignantly writes this. He says, no one can promote him and no one can degrade him. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfection. To doubt him takes nothing away. It is written that he upholds all things by the word of his power. So how could he be raised up or supported by the very things that he upholds? You see, in that reality, while humbling, is actually really good news. Because the truth is, is that if God needed us in any way, we would most certainly let him down. Maybe not immediately, but always eventually. But because he does not need us, what happens is you get to rest in his self-sufficiency. You get to rest in his self-sufficiency. We don't make the world turn. He does. And it's, he's not wringing his hands hoping that we might come through on our promises and finally hold true to what we say that we would do and finally start worshiping as him as we should. He is not relying on us in the first place. And that reality fills you with hope and confidence because the truth is that although God is absolutely unreliant on you, that he does not need you, the overwhelming message of the scriptures is that he chooses to have a relationship with us. That the self-existent and self-sufficient God chooses to have a relationship with us. A.W. Tozer again writes it this way. He says, The blessed news is that God who needs no one has set himself to work by and in and through his obedient children. He needs no one but when faith is present, he can work through anyone. You see, God does not need us, and yet the good news of his presence is that he chooses to relate to us and to use us for his glorious purposes. And it also gives us hope as well, God's self-sufficiency, because what it means is that there is no need that you and I have that he cannot meet. There is no need that he cannot meet. Philippians chapter 4, 19, Paul writes it this way, he says, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Psalm 84 reminds us that God doesn't withhold any good thing for those who walk in dependence on him. You see, the aseity of God is not just a theological idea that some pastors and theologians spent some time writing down. It's a reality that changes our lives. It rightly orients us as God's glorifying worshipers and as his humble stewards, and it removes the weight of trying to hold him or the world up on our shoulders, and it fills us with this purpose and hope as God supplies our needs and commissions us for his purposes. The problem is, though, that instead of believing that God is self-existent and self-dependent, you and I, we live as though we are the ones who are true of that. One commentator puts it this way, sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. Created to worship before the throne of God, man sits on the throne of his own selfhood. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. God's dominion ends where his selfhood begins. 
That's the very essence of our sin, is that we live as though we are God, as though we are the ones who are self-existent and self-sufficient. We are the ones who are responsible to no one. Instead of living in humble dependence on a self-existent and sufficient God, we live as though we are self-existent and sufficient ones ourselves, thinking that we don't need God and that we don't need others in contrast to what the Bible and what life teaches us over and over. Or we think that God's merely our assistant, someone that we can call on whenever we have an emergency or a need, That believing that if he exists, he does so for our good and our glory, certainly not his own. Instead of living as unworthy stewards who owe everything to God, we instead see ourselves as selfish owners. We think all that we have is ours, brought about by our own hands, forgetting that like Deuteronomy 8 tells us, that even the abilities and skills we have to produce wealth are gifts from God. That they're things that he has given us. Jen Wilkins, she puts it this way, whatever our spheres of influence, whether in our families or our jobs or ministries, we convince ourselves that we deserve credit for creating that which we are called to steward. We give worship to ourselves instead of the creator who made us and all that we know. In fact, we require credit be given to us to validate our efforts. We're like King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 who looks out from his palace on his kingdom and thinks, all this I've built by my power. It's for my glory. But maybe, maybe we're not that brazen. Maybe we don't outright think of ourselves as creators and owners, but we certainly at least think of ourselves as worthy stewards. We live like God owes us something. That what we have is something we certainly deserve, if not more. That by virtue of our obedience, God owes us some kind of reward, or even that by just nature of existing, God owes us some semblance of prosperity or happiness, and we forget that all that we have is a gracious gift from him, and that all we give back to him is simply what is right and worthy for us to do. Additionally, instead of viewing ourselves as dependent on him, we view God as dependent on us, at least partly. We would never say this out loud, but we relate to God like that when we think that, he, that we have something that he needs, something we can trade with him to get him back on our side. We think we say to God, God, I'll do X, Y, or Z if you'll do X, Y, or Z for me. God, I'll, I'll live this way, but you've got to give me the spouse I'm looking for. God, I'll do this thing, but you've got to promote me in my career. It's a tit for tat. It's a, it's a trade we'll make. And functionally, this is all that is, is just trying to manipulate God. And the good news is that since God needs nothing outside of himself, he cannot be coerced, he cannot be bargained with, he cannot be manipulated or blackmailed. Jen Wilkin, again, she so poignantly writes, she says, there is no carrot to dangle before the Almighty, for what can possibly tempt the one who every need and every desire is wholly met in himself. Sometimes we think that we have something God needs. Sometimes we think we are the thing God needs. And not selfishly or not egotistically, even humbly we do that. Just thinking that God needs us to accomplish his, his purpose. 
that our family or friends or neighbors, they won't come to faith or they won't change apart from our effort and our influence. That without us, that God's powerless to save or to change people. Functionally, we treat God like the Egyptian gods in the Marvel show Moon Knight, where, where they require avatars to interact with the world around them and are entirely unable to bring about their wills apart from humanity. But that is not true of the one true God. And while it is a glorious and humbling truth that the self-sufficient God chooses to use us to bring about his purposes, you and I must never fall into the belief that he is needful of us. He is utterly and entirely unreliant on you. But I want to be clear. All this talk about God's self-existence and his self-sufficiency that can lead us to the mistaken belief that because God does not need us that we don't matter to him. You see, but that is not true either. King David marvels at this reality in Psalm chapter 8. He writes it this way. He says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He says, you have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, all of which you have set in place. He says, I think, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Humanity, human beings that you care for them. You see, what David is holding in tension in that psalm is the aseity of God and yet his nearness to us. He says, God, you are so great and so big. Even all of this vast universe is small to you. And he says, yet you think of us and you care for us. He echoes this in Psalm 95. He says, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock that is under his care. You see, though God is completely independent, he chooses to assign to each of us an immeasurable value and significance. Because what we see is from the very beginning, God has made humanity in his image. He allows us to be important to him and we matter to him because he has determined that we will matter to him. You see, the gospel is the ultimate proof of that reality. Even when sin has ruined and destroyed our fellowship and access to him, he voluntarily enters into a saving relationship with us. Even though he had every right to condemn us in our sin, he instead sends his only son to live the life that you and I should have lived and to die the death that our sin and rebellion rightly deserves so that we might have relationship with him. You see, the gospel is the ultimate proof that although we are technically insignificant, we are relationally deeply significant to God. That we matter to him. And that's part of what we're remembering and celebrating each week in communion. That God didn't need to create us and he certainly didn't need to redeem us. He was not obligated to either and yet he freely chooses both. 
And communion that doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible's clear that faith in the person and the work of Jesus is the one thing that changes our status and standing with God. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember, to to remember that the self-existent and self-sufficient God proved that we mattered to him. That even though he did not need us, we were valuable to him. Not because we deserved to matter, but because he determined that we would. And when you hold the reality of God's aseity and your value to him in tension, what happens is that both brings you to your knees in humility, and yet it fills you overflowing with a sense of dignity and honor. Because the great God of the universe who does not need you and against whom you have rebelled, has chosen to save you and to invite you into his eternal purposes for your joy and for his glory. There's nothing else in the world that can humble you and fill you with joy like that can. And so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, or if you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of communion, I encourage you, go back and take communion. You can dip the bread in the juice. There's a table in the back on the left and the right. And you can do that whenever you feel led. Do it as a chance to remember and to worship God. But if you're here today and you you haven't yet put your faith in him, you are still living as though you are the self-existent and self-sufficient one then I want to encourage you, you are welcome here. In the midst of your questions, in the midst of your seeking, in the midst of your longing to understand, in the midst of your doubting even. But God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. God's after a heart that submits and surrenders to him completely. One that rejects your insufficient self-sufficiency so that you might embrace his sufficiency for you in Jesus. That's what God is after. And so as we sing and as we worship and as you remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you are at, talk with God. How does beholding and believing in the aseity of God need to shape your life? Maybe for some of you, you are here, and that reality this morning, it needs to humble you. Only God is self-existent and self-dependent. He is the creator and owner of all things, and you are not. And you live as though you are. And there is an invitation this morning that you might lay down the idol of your self-sufficiency, and that you might surrender it to him, the only one who is actually self-sufficient. I want to encourage you to ask him to help you have eyes to see where you are forgetting or rejecting your dependence on him or on others. Whether that's in your work or your parenting or your finances, I want to encourage you to instead of relying on yourself to choose to choose sufficiency in him and resting in him. Jen Wilkin again, she's so beautifully right. She says, sanctification is the process of learning, increasing dependence, not autonomy. For hungry and thirsty from 40 days of fasting, weakened by his need, Jesus responded to Satan's offers of autonomy by affirming the all-sufficiency of the Father. You see, what it means to grow up in your faith is that you are not increasingly self-sufficient, increasingly autonomous, but rather that you are increasingly dependent on God for everything. It's the mark of maturity as a follower of Jesus. 
And so maybe for some of you, God's aseity needs to humble you this morning. But for others of you, the reality of God's aseity, it needs to lift you up. And you need the reminder this morning that you can absolutely trust in his sufficiency. He is not just sufficient for himself. He is sufficient for you. He is enough for you in life, in death, to save and rescue. He is enough. He has all that you need. And he freely gives it to those who come to him in humility. And maybe some of you, you need this reminder that not just that you can trust him, but that in the midst of God's self-sufficiency and self-existence, that he has chosen that you matter to him. And you need the reminder that although you worship a God who is high and exalted, he is also a God who has humbled himself and come near to you. And that your worth is not determined by what you offer God or by what you fail to give him. It is determined by who you as he has made you to be, his image-bearing representative. And that reality means that you can bring anything to him God is not too big for your small things and neither is he too small for your big things. He is the sufficient one that you need. And though we are insignificant compared to him, he invites us to bring all of our concerns to him and to trust him with everything. And because of his aseity, that means that you can actually be confident that you can entrust all things to him. He is independent of you, unreliant on you, which means that he's able to be the thing that you need. There's a hymn I came across this week. I want to close with it this week. It's an old hymn from the 1600s written by a guy named Johann Scheffler. It's called Majesty and Mercy. And I think in one of the verses, he just sums up this beautiful picture of what it means for us to respond to the reality of the aseity of God. He says it this way, Fountain of good, all blessings flow from you. No want your fullness knows. What but yourself can you require? He says, yet self-sufficient as you are, you have desired my worthless heart. And this only this do you desire. You see, the right way for us to respond to the aseity, the self-existence and self-sufficiency of God is by giving all of ourselves back to him. To say, God, although you do not need me, you gladly choose to use me. I give every part of me back to you. Might it exist, might I exist and all things for your glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder this morning uh, that we are uh, not, that you are not relying on us, that you are not a contingent or dependent being like us, that you are self-existent and self-sufficient, and that is such good news. God, thank you that we cannot manipulate you. Thank you that there is no carrot we or anyone else can dangle in front of you, that you have all you need in and of yourself, and yet at the same time you freely give of yourself to us. That although we are indeed insignificant compared to you, you have chosen to make us significant in your eyes. 
And so we pray that we might hold rightly in tension the reality of your aseity and, of, and also of your loving nearness to us. That you use us, that you invite us into your purposes. Might that humble us, God, and yet might it fill us with dignity and honor that fuels a life of mission with you. God, we are so grateful that you are not needful of us. Help us to joyfully remember our needfulness of you. We pray, amen.